Well, guys, we are still in the the uh, book of Matthew, chapter eleven. We've been doing a series together uh, over the last several weeks, and and it's kind of reaching a climax. This week and next week, we will wrap up the uh, the series, and um, and and today we're going to look at the next eight verses in in Matthew chapter eleven. Um, let me just say right front that this is kind of a gut punch uh, to anybody who has ever tried to substitute religion for a relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, if when you think of, are, are you a Christian, you say, yeah, because I go to church. Or, are you a Christian? Yeah, I, I observe these rules. I, I, I keep these commands. If, if you've ever substituted this, this religion for a relationship with Jesus, then today is a message that is for you. I would also say this right up front. If there's ever been a message for churchgoers, in the Bible Belt, down deep south where we live in the Bible Belt, if there's ever been a message for churchgoers in the Bible Belt, this is that message. Jesus does not pull any punches. He doesn't mince any words with us. He talks about those who have settled for a casual form of Christianity. One of the dangers of living in a, in a land that is free, in a land that offers us the ability to worship as we please, to, to do so without persecution. One of the dangers of living in, in a, a time where there is no persecution is that we can grow complacent that we can grow casual in our relationship with God. And, and so Jesus doesn't pull punches here. He, he, he's, he's aiming at those who have settled for a form of, of casual Christianity. Um, and what Jesus is going to do here in some ways, and I hate to use this imagery, but I think it's, it's appropriate, is that Jesus is going to throw a hard punch. Not to harm us, but to knock us off of dead center. Um, if you ever work with electricity, uh, sometimes I work with electricity and I'll call Janet in the room. I say, now look, if this thing starts to shock me, don't grab me. Knock me off of it. Because if she were to grab me while I'm getting electrocuted, she's going to get electrocuted as well. And, and sometimes we need this hard punch to knock us off of dead center. And Jesus is going to be talking uh, today about six different churches. And he's going to be mentioning six different churches in, in this message. And, and, and what, his, what his goal is, is to kind of throw a hard punch at these casual Christians. Not to harm them, but to knock them off of dead center. To get them out of their, different, their, their indifference. Jesus wants to arouse something in us either love or hate for him, but, but he, he wants to, 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 to strike up inside of us something that wakes us up. What Jesus will say today will, will, will cause some in the crowd to hate him and others in the crowd to wake up and go, man, I've got to pursue this guy. He's trying to awaken those who are about to be slaughtered in their sleep. The, the message today, as it starts, I'm sure the crowd's going, yes, yes, yes. And all of a sudden it turns and they go, oh my goodness. It was Jesus' hope that his words would fire you up, either in one direction or the other, that you would either love him for it or you would hate him for it, but that you would not remain indifferent. You would not remain casual. You would not remain just asleep in your faith. In this passage, Jesus mentioned six different cities by name. Three that were, would have been considered in that day to be highly moral, upright, respectable, even, even righteous by that day's standards. And he's going to mention three cities that would have been viewed as wicked and immoral and ungodly. And what he will do is compare these two sets of cities and he will shock the crowd with his evaluation of those two groups. 
So let's look at what he says. He, he addresses in the passage uh, the city of, of Chorazon, uh, Bethsaida, and, and Capernaum. These are the good cities. These were cities that, that were well known for their good reputation. They were, they were cities that were located on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen cities, if you would. They, they were there. They were upright types of cities. They were right there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they were small towns, a lot like Vinton. They were small towns that were built on a fishing community, kind of a Cameron, Louis. Louisiana type feel. They were on the on the water. They were fishing communities, uh, and and they were located there. Um, they were simple people. They were hardworking people. They were honest people. Uh, when you think of those three cities, you think of the Bible Belt. You think of where we live. That kind of people. The Southern conservative. Christian mindset. That would be kind of the, the feel of what this, this, these towns would have, uh, have been. Uh, Capernaum, one of the three that he mentions in, those, in the good cities, had become kind of the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, the Bible says that he went to Capernaum and he kind of set up shop there. It became his headquarters, kind of his hometown. Uh, Jesus began to work in that area. We know that Capernaum was kind of a tax collection center. It's where the tax collectors would go, where you would go to pay your taxes. Uh, and I think back to what Jesus said previously in chapter 11, that, that he was accused of becoming a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners there in Matthew eleven nineteen. Why? Because the tax collectors were there. Their booths were set up, and you would go to that town to pay your taxes. Capernaum was also the town where five out of the 12 disciples that Jesus called uh, had, had either grown up or had moved to uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew, they all came from this town of Capernaum. It's a good place to live. It's a good place for Jesus to set up shop. Jesus spends a lot of his time there, and he does a ton of miracles in this region and in this area. Uh, in fact, Jesus did so many miracles. John records in John twenty one twenty five 25, that, that now he says there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written down, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So we're going to be given a, a small snapshot of what Jesus did in Capernaum. But this is not by any stretch of the imagination everything that Jesus did. It was, it was the town, the scripture says, where many of his miracles took place. So in Capernaum, some of the things that Scripture records that took place in Capernaum were, was that Jesus had healed uh, Jairus' daughter there. Uh, it, was, it was that town, that fishing town, where Jesus told the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the, of the boat, and they took in such a large amount of fish that, their, that their, their boat began to sink. There Jesus heals some demon-possessed men. There Jesus goes in and heals Peter's mother-in-law. It was there that, that, that the four friends brought their paralytic friend and, and tore open the roof and lowered him down, and Jesus heals the man there in this town. It was in this town that the centurion sent for Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And before Jesus could get there, the servant had died, and Jesus just spoke, and the servant was healed. It was in this town that the woman with the issue of bleeding touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed. We're told that in Capernaum, Jesus taught often in the synagogue that was built there. In Bethsaida, we read of him doing the, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus healing a blind man, that Jesus walked on the water after ministry in that town. So there's a lot of stuff that takes place in these three towns. And, and these three towns were the towns, Matthew 11 says, in Matthew eleven twenty that these were the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. 
So just knowing that, that this is a town where Jesus came and Jesus did a lot of great things, that all these miracles are taking place. In fact, when Jesus sent word back to John, remember the, the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked the question, Jesus, are you the one John wants to know? And Jesus, you tell him what you've seen. Jesus had just gone on a tour of all these cities doing all these miracles. These were the cities where his most mighty works, most of his mighty works had been done. So what was their response to this miracle tour of Jesus? Well, when you, when you looked at, at the passage here and you, you see that Jesus is about to, to denounce these cities, you think, man, they must have come against Jesus. They must have opposed Jesus. They must have been out to, 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 to harm him. But that's not the case. In fact, here's where the twist of the story begins to take place. When Jesus did his miracles in these towns, here's what the scripture records their responses were. They, they were overwhelmingly excited. They were amazed. They were in awe. They were astonished at his wisdom and his authority with the power with which he spoke. These towns were in shock and in awe of who Jesus was. These, town, they, they, these townsmen, they, they sang his praises. They even wanted to, to make him their king. They brought out the sick and the suffering for Jesus to heal. And, and even if he couldn't get to everyone, they'd try to lay him in the shadow of Jesus. And, and if the shadow would, would just pass over, or if they could just touch the hem of his garment. These were people that, that, that admired Jesus. They stood in awe of Jesus. They had great respect for Jesus. They lined the streets just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. These are the people for whom Jesus was their hero. In fact, in the stories that we read that took place in these towns, there's, there's no persecution mentioned. There's no pushback against Jesus. There's no threats. There, you don't even read of, of open criticism in the streets about Jesus. These guys were excited to have Jesus living in their hometown. They were excited when they, they knew Jesus was, was in town. It would seem on the surface that these three towns were the ideal place for Jesus to launch a ministry to kick it off and to go big and to go worldwide. So if that's the case, why don't we read in Matthew eleven twenty that it says Jesus began to denounce these three cities. If they were cheering him on, if they were supportive of what he was doing, if they were in awe and astonishment and, and all these kinds of things that we read, why is it that Jesus denounces the cities? We're going to answer that in just a minute. But those are the three cities that he mentions that are, in, in man's mind, good cities, good places to live. He mentions three other cities, though. He mentions the city of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. He mentions Tyre and Sidon together. These were kind of sister cities, and, and they were located over on the coast, uh, and, and, and they were over there in, in Phoenicia, and they were right on the coast, and, and these were great, huge cities of trade and commerce where ships would come in and unload, and then they would be taken other places. Uh, and, and when they mention these two cities, they're on the coast. They're known for their wealth and their power. They had great uh, armies and, 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 and were able to defend themselves. Um, they were known for their cedar trees and the purple dye that we read about in the New Testament. In fact, we know in the Old Testament that Solomon, King Solomon, uh, made a, a marital arrangement with them, a, 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 um, uh, a marital alliance with the, the cities in return for them supplying all the cedar that he would need to build the temple. Cedar from those places was used in the, in the building of the king's palace. And so this place was rich in cedar. It was rich in the purple dye, which was... was 
the sign of great wealth in that day. And so these guys had built a huge, huge stockpile of money and wealth and prestige and power, and they were located on the coast. But they became so rich and powerful, they didn't think they needed God. And, and, and they had so much wood and cedar, and, the, and it was just ideal for building temples. They began to build temples all over the place, but they were temples that were used in Baal worship. So they were wealthy. They didn't need God. They had these temples built to Baal, and, and, and the land was filled with Baal worship. And wickedness roamed those streets. And any time somebody heard the cities of Tyre and Sidon mentioned, they equated that with wickedness. There's a third town that Jesus mentions that would have been one of the bad towns to, to live in, and that was the town of Sodom. And we all know the Old Testament story of Job, and he lived in Sodom, and his heart was, was hurt by the, the wickedness of the city. We know that, that when God sent the two angels to warn Job of the, of the impending doom that was about to come and the destruction that was about to take place, that, that even as those two angels entered into Job's house, that the, that the homosexual men of that town came and started beating on the door, trying to knock down the door in order to have sexual relations with those men who were actually uh, angels. We know that the wickedness of that town... Uh, was unbelievable. In fact, we, we use that term Sodom to describe the, the, the perverseness and the evil of homosexuality and sodomy today. That town was also destroyed by God. So three towns that were destroyed by God because of their great wickedness. Now Jesus is going to take the three good towns and compare them to the three wicked towns. And what he's going to do, guys, listen, it... it it had to shock the crowd in that day. And it ought to send shockwaves through each of us who live in the Bible Belt, who are conservative Christians, who, who, who live and, and, and talk and, and, and associate around the church. It ought to do something inside of us. And so as Jesus begins to, to talk about this, he, he makes a comparison between these two. And, and everybody in the crowd had to think it's about to be a slam dunk. Jesus is going to talk about the three good cities and the three bad cities. He's going to praise the good ones and he's going to denounce the bad ones because that's what they would do in church. They thought in their mind Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were wicked. They deserved destruction. That Chorazon and Bethsaida and, and, and Capernaum were, 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 were towns that were in awe and amazement of Jesus. So they deserved to be exalted to the heavens and praised. This is exactly what the people of the town thought. It, it just seemed fair in their minds. But that's not at all what Jesus did. In a shocking twist, Jesus blasted the three cities where he did the most of his mighty miracles. He denounces those three towns. Why in the world would he do that? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now we can't afford to miss what Jesus is about to say. The townspeople in this town, in these three towns, they love to go out and see Jesus. Anytime Jesus showed up on the streets, crowds just, just flocked to see Jesus. They loved his miracles. They loved what he did for them and for their friends who were sick and who were desperate and who were diseased. He loved, they loved to watch Jesus work. They loved the way that Jesus spoke with authority. They would say things like, man, this man speaks with authority. Unlike our scribes and Pharisees and teachers, he speaks with authority. He knows what he's saying. 
They loved to see the power that flowed forth from Jesus. These guys were in awe. They stood amazed. They were astonished. Yet Jesus says they remained indifferent. They were unmoved by the miracles. They were unchanged. Their their hearts did not change. They watched the miracles and they applauded, but their hearts never changed. In fact, he says the problem with them was that they were not repentant. They did not repent. How in the world can you stand and see the Son of God do all the things that Jesus did in their midst and remain unrepentant? Here's why. They thought they were okay. They thought, we're doing fine. We're we're the good guys. We're the good cities. We are the good people. We are moral and upright. We think it's pretty cool that Jesus would show up and alleviate some pain. We think it's pretty cool that Jesus might come and and help the needy. We think it's pretty cool that Jesus would come and and raise the dead. Those things are awesome, but you know what? We're doing okay. Maybe Jesus could come and make things better for our country. Maybe he could come and deliver us from Rome, and that would be awesome. But, but he doesn't need to change us. We're good. We're fine. We're okay. There's no need for him to change us. We're good. We're not like Sodom. And we're not like those other towns. We're not like those pagans. We, we are all right. We're just fine. We've made some good choices. We're moral people. God ought to be proud that we're on his side, that we're showing up for his rallies. That we're cheering him on and bringing friends to him. He ought to be excited. The problem with these three towns was they were blind to their spiritual conditions. They couldn't see their real need. They thought, we don't need to be changed. Maybe just set free from Rome, that would be great, but, but we're doing okay. Business is good, life is good, family's good. We're okay. Jesus, let's let's just skip the talk about change. Let's just move on past that repentance. That's for other people. They thought their problem was not spiritual as much as it was political. If we could just get rid of Rome, we'd be all right. Just get Rome off our back and we can finally breathe and things will really take off. Here's what they were saying to Jesus. Jesus, you can deliver us. Just don't draft us into your army. We'll let you protect us. We'll let you provide for us. We'll let you serve us. We'll let you heal us. But don't ask us to enlist in your army. We are satisfied to be good civilians. We will admire and we will cheer our armed forces. We will thank them for their service when we see them wearing a cap. We will do everything to say, hey, we are behind you 100%. But don't ask us to serve. And don't ask us to enlist. And, 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 and don't ask us to get involved. We prefer just to watch and enjoy all the benefits that you'll provide. These guys didn't understand why Jesus had come. They just liked what he was doing for them. See, they're thinking purely in the physical. There's some healing, maybe deliverance from Rome. There's, there's restoration of our nation. But they failed to see that what Jesus actually came to do was to change people spiritually. And they're thinking in their heart, why would we need to be changed? We're good. We see this in the church today. 
Oh, those people up north. Man, there's some liberals up there. Let me tell you, you know, there's more people. And we start talking about them and we go, not us in the south, baby. We got this. We got this. Why do we need to change? We're, we're the good guys they're thinking. We're, we're moral and we're upright. We're hardworking. We're agreeable. We're supportive. Jesus, we show up when you call us. We even cheer you on. That message of change and repentance, Jesus, that's for the, uh, you're in the wrong town. <laughs> you got the wrong message for, for this town. That's for the other guys who are not quite as good as us. And listen, we cannot afford to miss what Jesus is saying in this passage. Literally, life and death hang in the balance. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it is not enough for you and me to be impressed with Jesus. It's not enough for us to be impressed with Jesus. It's not enough for us to show up and watch Jesus work. It's not enough for us to gather week after week and sing a few songs and listen to another sermon. It's not enough for us to stand in awe of what we read in Scripture and go, whoa, that must have been so cool to be there on that day. It's not enough for us to be amazed at what Jesus did or to be astonished at the wisdom and the power and the authority that he had. He's saying to the crowd, it's not enough for you to be supportive of me. It's not enough for me to make my hometown here. That doesn't fix your problem. It's not enough just to like Jesus or even to thank him for what he's doing. Jesus didn't come to assemble a crowd. Jesus came to totally reorient our lives to him. He came to change us completely. To restore what sin had destroyed. And for that to happen, repentance had to occur. Jesus didn't come just to listen to the crowds cheer. He wasn't an egomaniac who needed large crowds in order to feel good about himself. He didn't have to inflate his numbers or do anything else because that wasn't why he came. He came to reach individuals who knew they needed a Savior, who knew that Jesus was it, and who was humble enough to admit it. Nothing short of repentance would do. But these guys didn't see the need to repent. They didn't see the need to make Jesus the central core of their very being. Just like some of us, if we're honest, we've yet to do. We, we go to church. Some of us grew up in church. And, and we're very friendly and very familiar with Jesus and what he's done. And we go, dude, this is so cool. Look what Jesus did. But it never changes us. It never impacts our heart. It never leads us to that moment of repentance where we turn our back on sin and we make Jesus everything that we live for. We're comfortable and we're cozy with Jesus, but we are not committed to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's saying nothing short of repentance will work. And these guys didn't see the need to repent. Now, as shocking as that sounds, Jesus is not nearly done with this group. He says, listen, the reason he's denouncing this is that they would not repent. And so look what he says. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, for, for woe to you, Beth, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that have been done in you, if the things I've just done in your towns 
would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, those wicked coastal cities with, filled with Baal worship. If the works that I did in you had been done there, guess what, Jesus says? They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. What's Jesus saying? You have been given great opportunity and you don't even understand it. If those guys back then had been given what you've been given today, their hearts would have turned and and their cities would have been spared. But not you. Not you. And then listen to what he says. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, here comes the other shoe. It's about to drop. Don't miss this, guys. I tell you this, he says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. What was the fate of Tyre and Sidon? Wicked cities. Hell. He's not excusing their wickedness. But he's saying they didn't have the testimony. They didn't have the witness. They didn't have the Son of God that that you've had. And and it's going to be more bearable for them in hell than it is for you in hell. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He says to the church that is comfortable, to Christians who are just casual, to, to, to those who say, well, man, we're good. Repentance is for somebody else. He's saying you're going to end up in hell. And, and those of you who have been given a bunch of opportunity, it's going to be worse for you than those who didn't have that same opportunity. Degrees of punishment in hell is what Jesus is talking about here. And he's saying to these guys, you're both going to end up in hell. You and Tyre and Sodom, you're going to be in hell. But it's going to be easier and better for them in hell than it is going to be for you. Does that rock your boat just a little bit? Does it rock your boat to think that you could go to church all of your life, hear sermon after sermon after sermon, week after week, applaud the pastor, pat him on the back, text message, hey, great message, preacher, loved it today. Just wish old John had been here. And to think that you can have all that religion and never truly repent and be worse off in hell than the worst of the worst that you can think about? That's what Jesus is saying here. He is rocking these guys' boat. It is a sucker punch, a gut punch, that's trying to knock them off center to wake them up because they are, they are asleep spiritually and they are headed to the slaughter. And Jesus is trying to rattle their cage and to wake them up and to say, guys, you need to see what indifference will bring to your life. He goes on in, in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? These guys were proud. Jesus is from our hometown. He's a hometown boy. You ever travel through these towns? In, in the sign when you come in town, hometown of, you know? What's the, what's the refugio, Thomas, that we go to when we go to San Benito? Hometown of Nolan Ryan, you know? And they list all of Nolan Ryan's accomplishments, you know? These guys were proud that they would have a sign at the city limit saying, hometown of Jesus, the Messiah. We just don't repent. <laughs> we, we like him, we just don't really follow him. You, Capernaum, were you going to be exalted to heaven because that's your hometown? It's the headquarters of Jesus? He says, no, you're going to be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, oh my gosh, Sodom would have remained until this day. 
But I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. He's saying the same thing to, 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 to uh, Capernaum. You think you ought to be exalted. You ought to be praised because you, you applaud Jesus. You throw some money in the offering plate and you help support his ministry. But Capernaum, if, if what was done in, in front of you had been done in front of the people of Sodom, Sodom would have repented before you repented. So here's the deal. Your punishment in hell is going to be worse than Sodom's punishment in hell. Can you imagine how shocking and scandalous that sounded to the crowd that day? That the most wicked, vile, perverted, adulterous, pagan towns would be better off than these three moral, upright, conservative, peaceful towns? Listen, for those of us in the Bible Belt, please listen to what I'm fixing to say. For Bible Belt believers, for conservative Christians who tend to get more fired up about politics than they do about Jesus. More worried about the White House than we are about God's house. Churchgoers who are satisfied just to sit and to soak up another sermon. They, they, get, they want to be entertained, they want to be excited. But they never get around to repenting and following Jesus. This is a warning to all of us who are satisfied just watching Jesus work cheering Jesus on, but never getting around to surrendering everything to Jesus. This is a message for us in America, in the South, in the Bible Belt, where we, we believe in God and guns and whatever else, but, but, but this is it. Jesus is saying that kind of stuff not going to get you to heaven. In fact, your advantage that we have here in the South will make you more responsible when you stand before God. Jesus is saying the punishment for the ignorant will not be near as bad as the punishment for the indifferent. Same thing is said in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Same kind of issue, warning is issued. Listen to this. He's talking about a master who's left on a trip, gone to a wedding feast, and told his servants to stay watch and, and take care of his stuff and, and manage his, his estate while he's gone, that he'll be back. And he lingers for a little while. And, and the punchline of that story, that warning that comes is this in verse 47. It says, and that servant who knew his master's will. In other words, there was no doubt what the master wanted but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive severe beating. But the one who didn't know, still did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Because everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's he saying? God's going to hold us accountable based upon what we have learned and the opportunities that have been placed before us. God demands more from those that he's provided more to, more from the towns where he did his mighty works, more from us in the Bible Belt than those that live in pagan places that still haven't seen or heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus being so harsh on these three good towns? Why? Because these three good towns had had Jesus right there in their midst. They'd been given opportunity after opportunity to repent. 
They saw it with their own eyes, miracle after miracle, proof after proof of who Jesus was, and yet they remained unmoved, unchanged, indifferent, unrepentant, Jesus says. And Jesus says, if the three bad towns, the worst of the worst, had seen that much evidence, they would have repented long ago. So Jesus issuing this stern warning about where indifference will lead us. He's not saying these things in anger. He's warning them out of love. He's trying to knock them off of dead center. Because he knows where indifference will lead. Jesus knows. He's not stupid. He knows that when he says what he's just said, people are going to go one of two directions. They're either going to be so mad they want to kill him or so shook up that they're going to reevaluate where they're at. And you know what Jesus says? Either one of those is better than indifference. Hate me for what I claim. Hate me for what I say. Hate me for how I expose your sin. Hate me, but at least you're hearing me. If you hate me, that means you heard and you understand that I'm saying something that you don't like. Hate me for it or love me for it. And repent. But either one of those is better than the indifference that he was experiencing in these three towns. I believe indifference will send more people to hell than atheism. Just don't get too radical. Just don't overdo it. Just enjoy Jesus and enjoy the blessings that he sprinkles around. Just, just, just you know, live and let live. Indifference. Now, this begs the question, what does Jesus expect from us? What, what does he want? I mean, these guys were cheering him on. They were excited. They were supporters. What does he want? Well, obviously, Jesus is not just looking for awe or admiration or applause or your attendance. He says what he's after is repentance. And that repentance is not just lip service. Oh, God, I'm, I'm sorry. It's not just, hey, I like Jesus, man. I think he's cool. Huh? He's a prophet, yeah. He's, he's a good guy, yeah. He had some good things to say. That's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, hey, when I'm in a bind, I'm going to go to Jesus, man. When things get tough, I know where to go. That's not repentance. Here's what repentance is. It is a total reorientation of one's life to the claims of the gospel. Total reorientation of one's life to the claims of the gospel. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, repentance is ripping up the old foundation of your life and discarding it and allowing Christ to build a brand new foundation upon which your life will be built. Jesus insists on being the all-absorbing center of our lives. Not just some add-on, not just a tire in the trunk that we pull out when we have a flat. He wants to be the all-absorbing center of our lives. The one around whom everything else will rotate. The axis on which our, our, our world will spin. In order for that to happen, we've got to repent. We've got to have this complete change of heart. Where we no longer get out of bed and live for ourselves. But we wake up in the morning saying, how can I serve my master? It's not just a new attitude. It's not just changing a few bad habits. It's a complete change of heart. And it's not even 
trying to find a way to, to, to a better way to live for myself that, that, that's moral and acceptable and, and within the law, that's still self-centered. It's not that at all. We, we need to look at the miracles of Jesus. We ought to stand in awe of his power and his authority. We ought to be astonished at the claims that he makes upon our lives. And we ought to long to see him work in our midst day after day. But, but, if it stops there, without us totally reorienting our lives around him, we may build a great career, we may lead a great organization, we may do great things for our family, we may have a beautiful house, a beautiful car, beautiful toys, we may have all that success the world can offer and still end up in hell. Repentance, which is required, is a total reorienting of our lives around Jesus. And if we stop short of that, then we're no different than the three towns that Jesus denounces in this passage. And our fate will be no different than theirs. Jesus understands where indifference leaves us, where it leads us. And he is doing his best here to help us avoid that tragic end. So after he denounces these cities, after he warns them that if something doesn't change, that it'll be more tolerable for the wicked cities than it will be for them in the day of judgment, he says something that seems kind of strange. It says, at that time, Jesus declares, he, he, he speaks out, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What in the world is Jesus trying to say? Well, first thing he does is call God his father. And that would have just lit the Jews up. It would have made them, I mean, that just that, that's blasphemy in their mind, that you call God father. John chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. Jesus has just healed the man at Bethesda who was at the pool of Bethesda. Been there for years waiting on, on healing, and, and Jesus comes and heals him. And, and it's done on the Sabbath, and the Jews are mad that this man's carrying his mat home on the Sabbath, and he's just tootling down the road so excited that he's finally able to walk. And, and who told you this? Who did this to you? Who told you to carry your mat? And they found out it was Jesus. And this is John's summary of that, of that moment. It says, because the man was carrying his mat and Jesus told him to do it. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, and he said, my father is working until now. And I am working. Here's Jesus again calling God his father. And then look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So they've gone from persecuting him now to trying to kill him because he's called God his father. And in their mind, look what it says in Scripture. He was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So here's Jesus back in Matthew now. He's calling God the Father. I thank you, Father. I thank you that we're equal. You're the Lord of heaven and earth. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. We are equal. And I'm thankful that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. You've revealed them to little children. What things are he talking about? The identity of Christ, who Christ really was. Christ's right to demand full allegiance from his people. Jesus' right to, to ownership of his creation. Jesus is right to denounce the indifference that's in our hearts. I'm thankful that you've hidden these things. Why would Jesus be thankful that the Father is hiding it? Sounds kind of weird. Why would, why would you have such a great message and want it to be hidden? 
Well, look who he's hiding it from, the wise and the understanding, the proud and the arrogant, those who think they've got it all figured out, those who don't need Jesus to tell them anything new. They don't need a new insight from Jesus. They know more than anybody else, so they're not even listening. And Jesus says, I'm thankful that in their arrogance, you're going to humble them. Because for them to come to Jesus, that pride's got to be dealt with. For them to come to Jesus, they've got to realize that they don't already know Jesus. I heard a preacher say once, in order to win somebody to Christ, you've got to first get them lost. Before anybody will repent and come to Jesus, they've got to first realize they are lost. Nobody comes to Jesus without first realizing that they're lost. He says, I'm thankful that you revealed it to the little children, to those that are humble and teachable, those that don't know it all. You think about children that, 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 that are just eager to, to learn. We had Natalie at the house this last couple of days just hanging out with us, and, and, and she was trying to do some stuff in the kitchen cooking. She goes, Papa, I don't know how to do this yet. Can you show me? She's saying, I'm teachable. I'm learnable. Now, when they get to be teenagers, it's a whole different ballgame. But at this stage, they're, they're, they're like sponges wanting to soak it all up. They, 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 they need Jesus. They're willing to learn. They're willing to listen. And they're willing to trust. He says, that's your gracious will, to hide it from the proud, to reveal it to the humble. How is that grace? Well, the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I want you to think about something. That even as God exalts the humble, he, 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 he lifts up the humble. He also humbles then those that are proud. And he does it not to harm them, but to help them to understand their need for him. See, as long as I think I don't need him, as long as I think I'm okay, as long as I think I've got it going the right direction, I'm prideful and I'm not ready to come to Jesus. But if God can humble me, if he can let me fall on my face, if he can rebuke me, then all of a sudden my heart and my eyes are open and I realize that I need him. So even in his rebuke, and even in, in him coming in and, and trying to humble the proud, God is being gracious because in that moment we can see our need for him. Now, <laughs> certainly by this point, Jesus has knocked some people off center. He has helped them to see that, 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 that they are not where they need to be. There will be some that, that want to know him more, some that want to discredit and destroy him. But, but by, by no doubt, they're all wondering, is this guy for real? Are his claims legit? Can he really do what he's doing by demanding all of this of us? You may be asking those same questions. So Jesus wants to make clear in verse 27 that he has a right to do that. And he says some, some, some astonishing things. Some guys say this is the most astonishing claims that Christ ever made while he was on earth. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Saying the authority God has, it's been granted to me. The power that God's got, it's been granted to me. The knowledge that God's got, it's been, it's been given to me. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. We're equal, Jesus is saying. In fact, no one knows the Son except the Father. There's nobody that understands me more than the Father know, understands me. You guys think you know me? You don't. But the Father does. And the Father knows me and he trusts me. And no one knows the Father except the Son. There's none of you, Jesus would say, that know God the way that I know God. None of you that understand what God's up to the way that I understand what God's up to. And the only people that will ever know that are those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Here's what Jesus is saying. Me and the Father are one. 
His power is my power. His authority, mine. His knowledge, mine. He knows me, I know him. We are in intimacy. We, there, there's no daylight between us. Jesus is saying here, I am God. I am worthy to say to you, your life belongs to me. I'm worthy to say to you that you've got to surrender, you've got to repent, that you've got to turn your heart to me. I'm worthy of everything I'm asking you. I am worthy of that because I am God. And here's something else Jesus is saying. He's saying it's impossible for you to say you love God and not love Jesus. Impossible for you to say that you know God without coming to know Jesus. Impossible for you to be passionate about God and be indifferent about Jesus. Jesus is trying to knock us off dead center because he knows where this indifference will lead us. So as we close today, we need to do some serious soul searching. I've written out some things I want to ask you to think about this morning as we close. We need to ask ourselves this question, am I indifferent toward Jesus? Can I go and hear a message and go, yeah, that's great. I'll give you four stars today, preacher. And never, ever change? Do I applaud Jesus, praise Jesus, like Jesus, ask Jesus for help? Do I run to Jesus when I have a problem? Do I love to watch him work and yet I remain uncommitted to his cause? Or would I say I'm, I'm all in, 100%. If Jesus speaks it, I'm, I'm going to do it. If he calls for me to do this, I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm all in. I'm totally reoriented. Jesus has shifted my heart and changed it completely. If that's where we're at, we need to ask this question. What's the proof? What, what's the real tangible difference that knowing Jesus has made in my life? You see, if I claim to know him, but I don't have him at the center point of my, my life and my, my, my being, then something's tragically wrong. Do we just admire him from a distance? Or do we love him up close? Are we simply amazed by his grace? Or has that grace really transformed everything about us? Does he have ownership of all of you? Or just part of you? Jesus is saying to us, guys, listen, he's saying, there is no place in the kingdom of God for lukewarm looky-loos who just want to watch the show. That's not what it means to be a believer. He said to the church in Laodicea, you're neither hot nor you're cold. You're just lukewarm. And it makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. He says the same thing to these towns here in, in Galilee. And whether we like it or not, he says the same thing to us today. Can we honestly say, man, I'm all in. And at the same time, remain indifferent about the things that are most important to Jesus. Can I say I'm all in, Jesus, but I really don't care about helping the poor. I really don't care about those who are lost and pagan or, or, you know, worldly. I'm all in, Jesus, but, you know, I... I don't really want to build a kingdom. I don't really want to share my faith. I don't really want to let others know what you've done inside of me. I just want to, you know, hang out, enjoy the show. Can we honestly say to Jesus, man, I love you. I just don't really, I'm not that crazy about what you're all about. Can we listen to God's word week in and week out and not be moved by that word? Can we handle the double-edged sword of God's word and, and not be cut deeply by it? 
Can, can he really reside deep in our hearts and yet we're not moved by what moves him? Jesus makes it clear in this passage that God is not indifferent about those who are indifferent about him. He says, those of you that have just had the truth but remain indifferent, your fate is worse than if you'd never heard the truth to begin with. We need for the Lord to capture our hearts, to radically reorient us to himself. Here's what Jesus is saying. Be all in or all out, but don't be lukewarm. Don't be caught dead sinner. Don't remain indifferent to the gospel. We've been given great advantage. We, we live in a free country. Most of us have grown up here in the Bible Belt. Church on every corner. Living during the information age where you've got instant Bible access to anything and everything that you want to know. There's no excuse for us remaining indifferent. To whom much has been given, much is demanded. Jesus didn't come just to amaze you. Jesus came to transform you. To reorient every part of our lives around him. He came to make us fully his. How does that happen? How can that be a reality in your heart and in my heart? We're going to talk about that next week. But it all starts with the first three words of verse 28. Where Jesus says, come unto me. That's where it starts. To recognize that you have a need and to come to Jesus. Not to recognize the need and say, I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. But to recognize the need and to come to Jesus. You see, you and I can't change ourselves. But like a child, we can run to our Father and cry out for His help and for Him to change us. For him to make us fully his. For him to eradicate the indifference that's in our hearts. And to set us on fire. See guys, listen. Jesus didn't come to make you good. And he didn't come just to make you moral. He didn't even come to make you more religious. The people in Jesus' audience on this day were all of those things and more. They observed the rules. They gave their money, they prayed, they fasted, they read, they memorized scripture. They even taught other people about God. In fact, they were probably better people than us. And yet Jesus says they're still lost. Jesus came to reorient our lives. And he says to these towns, you did not repent. You did not have that reorientation of your heart. And because of that, you remain indifferent and you remain on the road to hell. Jesus comes with this message, guys, to knock us off dead center. And it is a gut punch. I've spent so much time this week looking at my own heart and life and saying, Lord, am I just amazed by what you do or am I amazed with you? He wants to knock us off dead center. He wants to to get rid of the pride that keeps us from coming humbly to him and admitting our need. And he wants to save us from the sin that will send us to hell. So today we've heard the truth. 
And now we've got to decide what we're going to do. Hate him for it? Love him for it? Or just remain indifferent to it? And I pray we choose wise as we close in prayer. Let's pray.